Welcome to Beyond the Capital from Supertech. This year, the Commonwealth Games are coming to Birmingham. So to celebrate, we're doing our own baton relay. We're making virtual visits to as many of the Commonwealth countries as we can and exploring their startup and scale-up scenes. And we're hearing from West Midlands-based businesses with Commonwealth connections. Beyond the Capital is the podcast series that explores the professional services tech scene outside of London. I'm Hilary Smith-Allen. This is the last episode of the series. We're making virtual visits to two final Commonwealth countries, Singapore and South Africa. We're going to find out about how they've become regional leaders in law tech and fintech. First up, I spoke to Lavina Ramkisu, co-founder and vice chair of the Fintech Association of South Africa. Good morning, Lavina. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Could we um, begin with you outlining your role and your involvement in fintech? So I'm currently uh, holding the position of a vice chairperson, um, as well as a co-founder for the South African Fintech Association. Um, With this, we've basically uh, decided to form the association around having a voice amplification uh, within the space um, around three different uh, areas. But we'll get into that a bit later. You can get into it now, Go on. What are the three areas? I'm intrigued. <laughs> awesome. Um, so the three areas that we really focus on is around community, uh, innovation and advocacy. Um, community is obviously bringing together, you know, the diverse community that we have uh, within the Africa context as well as in particular, the South African context. And this is really just around the open dialogue, the collaboration, the co-creations, you know, um, all of that. Uh, around the innovation, we really look around, you know, the the, the next phase, uh, where to next when it comes to fintech and how can we best support that, um, both from a community perspective, partner and sponsorship perspective. And then advocacy is just generally around, you know, how do we create more of a unified voice for the South African fintech ecosystem? And how do we get all the stakeholders to, you know, have an equal say and an equal weighting uh, within the uh, environment? So just a small remit within a, a small country. What, what's your involvement then in fintech more broadly? What brought you to this agenda? So generally the love for tech, uh, I've been in the tech space for uh, give or take 20 odd years, uh, together with uh, some indulgence in uh, psychology and economics, um, and hence found the natural intersection point uh, within FinTech itself. So, you know, having been in the space for uh, a long time uh, and pandemic hit, um, I really found it an opportunity, um, you know, to do something different. And that was to create that voice for the South African fintech ecosystem. It is something that we, we've we been late to the game, uh, naturally. But, you know, having said that, uh, it's never too late. <laughs> no, it's never too late. And I uh, have some resonance with that from our position in the West Midlands within the UK. But it was interesting then when you talked about COVID sort of being the initiator for that did you really find that 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 sort of brought you all together a bit more or how did that come into being yeah so generally you know you have a a regulator dealing with you know 200 500 odd um, startups um, you know to kind of find their voice and to kind of find their space and then you have like these mini pockets of communities that exist uh, whether you know it's on the crypto end uh, you know whether it's regulatory tech whether it's you know legal tech whether it's um, you know pure fintech uh, investments payments you know remittance wherever it is because fintech in itself is so large Um, but you know we just found that it's an easier route to kind of have more of a unified voice. And that's something we kind of really lacked. 
uh, in the past. You started to touch then about the the landscape that of fintech in South Africa. Are there areas that you particularly specialize in and, and is it geographically particularly concentrated? What's, what's it like? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, so um, geographically, we probably have our headquarters set up in uh, Cape Town and Johannesburg um, out of the nine provinces. Uh, but having said that, we're not, uh, you know, uh, bound by them. Uh, we very much uh, thrive on the facts of uh, knowledge exchange uh, between the provinces. Um, so, you know, setting up um, a space for startups to be able to interchange that knowledge. Uh, but we also do that from an intercontinental perspective. So within Africa itself, um, as well as, you know, with the likes of um, the rest of the globe as well. Um, so, you know, the different areas that we'd probably support is the training, education, investments, knowledge exchange, um, you know, as well as um, regulatory. Um, because we find that, you know, from a regulatory perspective, we've had probably um, very little voice um, as an, uh, you know, ecosystem player um, as startups. And yet we contribute a large portion um, from an economic perspective um, to the GDP. So we thought, you know, it's about time we, uh, we get together. So how, how do you think then South Africa compares with the wider Africa region? Or you mentioned there that you're employing like a, a leadership role within that. How, how does that collaboration work? Yeah, so interesting enough, if we can maybe start off with some stats, um, you know, Africa definitely is a hive and a buzz at the moment when it comes to fintech. We have something around 573 fintechs within Africa, um, of which uh, just within the first quarter itself, um, you know, from a South African perspective, we're number three in terms of investments uh, raised to date, which was something around 1.6 billion uh, USD. Um, you know, having said that, um, you know, Africa, uh, South Africa definitely holds its own weight. Um, you know, we have uh, definitely seen an increase in terms of the Francophone regions adding their voices and amplification of that. But I think, you know, generally we work with the likes of the uh, African FinTech Network, uh, which is a large uh, supporter and has up to about 26 different countries uh, across the continent really linked up, um, you know, when it comes to any fintech movement. Um, so, I mean, there's there's lots of interchange of knowledge, but besides that, it's also helping each other from a regulatory perspective. We know that, that some countries uh, within Africa definitely stand out more than the others, the likes of Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, Ghana, um, you know, and, and, and a few others that are up and coming. Yeah. So, you know, it's just about creating uh, a more cohesive way of us being able to grow and expand. So, you know, for example, a startup in Nigeria may may definitely want to, you know, come to the shores of uh, South Africa and, you know, allowing for those opportunities to kind of happen very seamlessly because we know FinTech is highly regulated. Although it's a very rather traditional and and old sense of uh, of uh, working at this point, um, so you know it's it's trying to ease all of that uh, and at the same time uh, creating the impact uh, for the larger digital citizen at the end of the day. So, are there any interesting trends that you're seeing both within South Africa or, or wider within Africa? Yeah, 
I love this question. Um, so we've definitely seen a lot more infrastructure layers to fintech actually coming through. So by that, I actually mean um, things like biometrics, more regulation, more compliance. Um, you know, that's the infrastructure layer for us to be able to function. Uh, but added to that, we've seen things around, um, you know, the common old problem, which is, um, you know, fees uh, are re generally very expensive within uh, South Africa to, to operate, uh, leave alone the wider of Africa, you know, and this is something that really um, a lot of startups are trying to solve uh, within the continent. Uh, added to that, we've uh, started to see the rise of digital banks, uh, the common trend of buy now, pay later. Um, some of the um, the other two would include things like your Web3 and your Metaverse, uh, where we've seen a large portion of telcos uh, actually coming in and supporting a lot of the work that's being done in that uh, space. And is there a big driver around financial inclusion that that is driving? A slightly left field, but I just wondered. It, it's something that someone else has mentioned in the in the African context. So yeah, it's quite a pertinent question um, and and observation. Um, so thank you for that. Um, yes. So the short answer is um, absolutely yes. Um, we've seen you know education in terms of financial literacy uh, rather much a, a basic need because we have a very large unbanked market, right? Um, and things like open banking and open financing, which exist with in, uh, you know, fintech itself uh, really offers an opportunity to onboard a lot uh, of people that have previously been missed out together with the likes of obviously mobile payments uh, or mobile banking. Um, so, yes, uh, there is a large drive to that. Um, however, I think we're probably coming to, you know, the uh, the, the, the peak uh, range of it uh, because we naturally sit with a very uh, large population that is the youth. So 60% of our population is youth and, um, you know, that's anywhere from 19 years onwards. Um, and I don't think they actually require a lot of literacy. <laughs> <laughs> And then where do you see this going then in the coming years, both from fintech within Africa, but also for your, your relatively new association? Yeah, um, I guess, you know, we've just obviously come off the great resignation or kind of, you know, starting to see that emerge quite a lot, um, you know, and together with that and having the future vision in mind, um, you know, I definitely find the intersectionality of where we're going around financial identity um, in particular, as well as the interoperability of this financial data that we sit with. Um, so those are the two sort of key areas for me. Um, you know, when we talk around financial identity, it is, um, you know, who is me as a digital citizen um, and am I able to, you know, transact my digital identity um, through various many platforms with absolute ease um, and without any sort of understanding of logging on, logging off uh, onto multiple platforms. Um, you know, financial identity is something that, um, you know, one definitely starts with awareness, but you know, it, it sort of really gravitates into a lot more. Uh, it becomes everything of who I am, um, you know, when I'm transacting, uh, when I engage, uh, when I purchase, uh, when I, you know, um, sort of meet an e-commerce platform or whether it is me doing, you know, um, neo-banking or digital banking or engaging on any of those fronts, right? Um, 
so I feel like that's going to be something that's really huge on the continent, um, you know, together with the fact of that interoperability of data that I talk about. And for me, that's definitely around, you know, how do we exchange financial data with each other, um, you know, rather securely? Um, and that becomes, you know, uh, quite a key focus uh, area, um, obviously, together with a bit of transparency, because, you know, as we know, traditionally, um, you know, in, in the finance industry, um, especially within the Africa context, um, you know, transparency is something that that may very well be needed a lot more. What's the reception been like from the regulators and policymakers, authorities? You've mentioned them a number of times as being part of your mission to influence and have that voice. How have they received the, the creation of the FinTech Association of South Africa? Yeah, awesome question. So uh, we've actually had, um, you know, quite a good acceptance. Um, that acceptance has been one that has been welcomed by the um, South African Reserve Bank, uh, together with a few other, um, you know, entities like the uh, Payment Association um, and the likes of them. Um, that's from a South Africa perspective. I think from a uh, African perspective, you know, in terms of influencing policy, I personally sit, um, you know, uh, as an advisor uh, to the African Union uh, in terms of policies. So this becomes quite a, uh, a close-knitted thing for myself uh, to get involved with. Um, I've personally been involved uh, with the likes of Nigeria and Ghana uh, in terms of their policy changes when it comes to the fintech. Um, as well as the um, artificial intelligence, um, you know, sort of end. We're currently working on what we call um, our data uh, policies. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot of scope and a lot of room for improvement. Uh, you know, like everything, we need a framework to play within. And for a large time, fintechs have not had that framework to uh, to play within. And I think this is just going to add a layer of um, security for the digital citizen at the end of the day. Thanks for your time this morning, Lavina. It's been really, really interesting to get your insights from South Africa. All the best with your new association. Absolute pleasure, Hilary. It's been a blast. And thank you so much for your well wishes. That was Lavina Ramkusun, co-founder and vice chair of the FinTech Association of South Africa. I also spoke to Jennifer Lim, co-founder and editor of LawTech Asia. Morning, Jennifer. Thanks for joining me today. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Could we start perhaps by you outlining your role and your involvement in LawTech? Sure, of course. So I'm currently involved in contributing to the development of the law tech space in Singapore and Asia in various capacities. So I co-founded Law Tech Asia and ETPL.Asia. I also sit on the founding steering committee of the Asia Legal Innovation and Technology Association, which is also known as the Alita for short. So you know a little bit about law tech? <laughs> Just a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> like there's a lot in there, but how much of that is Jennifer just doing it uh, as part of a job or on, is it on top of a day job? Uh, yeah, it's on top of a day job, but it's with uh, a really solid and amazing team for each of them. And you mentioned um, the word policy in there and some bits, and I've got the sense that this is not just lawyers doing it for themselves. Is there, you know, is the Singaporean government or authorities, you know, what, what's, what's the makeup of that interaction within, within those activities? I would say that the government is um, really open. So, for example, 
um, a few years back, there was a public consultation released on a model framework for AI governance. And it was inviting feedback and responses from um, various stakeholders in the public. Uh, so LawTech Asia is one of the respondents that provided recommendations for the um, model framework for AI governance. And then, Sue, what do you think that's done for Singapore's position as a, a legal innovation hub? How do you see yourselves in, in the concept, context of all of this? I think Singapore is really a strong legal innovation hub um, and is really uniquely inspirational because of the strong governmental support, um, as well as its public sector-led implementation and industry partnerships. And it's really the government support that has been instrumental to Singapore's success as one of Southeast Asia's largest legal tech ecosystem with about more than 25 legal tech firms. And I would say that how LawTech Asia fits in this is that we are connectors in this ecosystem. Uh, so if you're looking for someone to partner with, uh, it would be likely that we would know someone to introduce you to and to connect you with. And um, I mean, this is something that uh, we've been doing in this space, not just in our capacity as a thought leader, but just as people who are passionate about growing the legal innovation space in Singapore. And I guess you were asking about how Singapore is as a as a legal innovation hub. And I would say that um, the strong governmental support is not just in demonstrated by its open consultations, such as um, the earlier one that I mentioned, but also how it supports um, startups through legal tech accelerators. So for instance, in 2019, the government launched a legal tech accelerator, which was known as GLIDE, which stands for Global Legal Innovation and Digital Entrepreneurship. And this has helped local and international legal tech startups to scale up and also facilitated the co-creation of legal innovation in AI, blockchain, and advanced analytics. And I think the other unique about the Singapore government, which has contributed to Singapore's um, position as a legal innovation hub, is that the government does not just facilitate startups, but it's also cognizant of the fact that adoption is really the key. And so in order to facilitate legal tech adoption, the government has been quite generous in supporting law firms in their legal tech endeavours. So as you can see, the, the government has um, many layers and approaches to how it's developing and shaping Singapore as a legal innovation hub. That's really interesting because one of the things about legal tech is quite often the law firms aren't necessarily the, the focus of the innovation or, or the primary adopters. If you think about clients and, and consumers within that. And yet there's a, there's a clear steer there, isn't there, from government to work with law firms. Is that what I heard? Yes. How, how do you think Singapore, therefore, is going in Asia and global terms with, with this agenda? Are you becoming a market leader? Well, I would see ourselves as a market leader, although I would also highlight that um, the wider Asia region, um, in general, government does recognise the importance of legal tech across the board. And I would say that various countries across Asia are indeed making efforts to develop and implement legal tech in, in various forms. So, 
For instance, the Hong Kong government has also released a law tech fund to subsidize law firm tech adoption and training. And in China, a new cloud mediation platform was also released in Hangzhou. And in Korea, there are various electronic courtrooms across the country, and they also do adopt electronic filing system. So I would say that um, governments across Asia in general are making efforts to develop legal tech. But I would say that everyone's efforts are unique and perhaps more suited to, I guess, the needs of each particular region and country. And are you seeing the benefits of this investment for other sectors, other ones where where legal services are the client base, perhaps? Some of the thinking of fintech or ones which are being disrupted and are they benefiting from this investment? Uh, Yes, I would say so. Um, I would say that that Singapore is both a legal tech hub and a and a hub for for fintech as well. We have um, really a lot of fintechs in this space, uh, ranging from uh, whether it's payments, blockchains, crypto, crypto exchanges. And I would say that there's um, there's a huge development, not just because um, there are companies who are in Singapore setting up and providing all these services, but also because there's um, demand for these services from, I guess, the public at large as well. And as Law Tech Asia, are you seeing any particular trends? Yes, definitely. I think that trends can be seen in two different areas. Those products which are litigation specific and those products which are corporate specific. So in for those litigation specific products, I think as we know, COVID has brought on the onslaught of online dispute resolution and has definitely accelerated the adoption and uptake what, with what we see as virtual hearings and um, online mediations being conducted more frequently. So that's definitely a great trend. And uh, in this line, there are also consequently more products and legal tech solutions that are coming out to support these kinds of e-hearing kinds of needs and also uh, the usual document assembly and document production and e-discovery types of products. And as for corporate related products, what we see would be um, both products relating to document review and document drafting. Uh, such as contract drafting, as well as products relating to due diligence. So yeah, that would be the trends that we've been seeing moving forward. Is there anything that particularly excites you? Oh yeah, so something that really excites me would be to watch the development of decentralized arbitration. So I think we are familiar with the concept of online dispute resolution, but um, decentralized arbitration might be something... Uh, more new to everyone. And one of the key market players in this field would be Kleros. And how this works would be, for example, if there was a cross-jurisdictional dispute between a web designer in China and his client in London on the quality of the website which was delivered by the web designer, the disputants could refer their disputes for resolution via Kleros, which allows disputants to resolve their differences via peer-to-peer decentralized arbitration. So how this works would be that the disputants can select 
their peers as arbitrators to decide on two things, whether the quality of the website was really subpar, and secondly, the amount of fees to be paid to the web designer. And an interesting thing is that um, the types of peers who can be selected as arbitrators would be web designers or small business owners, which would be, I guess, different from the usual types of arbitrators that we traditionally see in the arbitration scene or uh, the litigation scene. And the key benefit of this is that this process saves hefty legal fees incurred from taking out cross-jurisdictional suits to recover small sums, which could also spend many, many years and might not be worth it for the types of sums that we're looking at. And so what would be interesting to see would be if more parties considered including such um, ODR clauses in their agreements, especially if they are smaller in contract value. Well, that's really interesting. We sort of think about eBay here as that, that early dispute resolution. You can settle so many disputes, can't you, without touching uh, any kind of li- well law, hopefully. but The courts. <laughs> that's right, certainly not the courts. Just to close then, what do you expect over the coming years? What, what are you hoping for or planning for and um, anticipating within Law Tech Asia? Within Law Tech Asia, I guess, what we really hope is to see how um, the legal innovation scene would evolve in the coming years. For me personally, I really believe that there are two aspects to legal innovation. The first type would be the process innovation, which is about innovating and redefining the process for delivering legal services. And the second aspect would be product innovation, which is changing and innovating the type of products that you even wish to deliver to a client in the first place. And so for the first aspect on process innovation, right now I think we already see that there's a huge wave of technological innovation um, that can improve legal processes from AI-enabled legal research to automated contract reviews or virtual trial platforms. And what I really hope to see in future is the greater widespread adoption of these technologies. And I really believe that with the increase in government grants and um, public sector support and implementation, um, there would also be greater technology adoption by firms and clients in coming years. Um, As for the second aspect of product innovation, which I think is where the future lies, I'm really excited to see how this area will evolve in the coming years, especially in the area of smart contracts and online dispute resolution. So on the point of online dispute resolution, I've already explained a bit about how Claros and decentralized arbitration works. And I think what I'm really excited to see in future would be that for smart contracts. So I think as we all know, there's been a lot of talks about smart contracts because of the rise in blockchain and Web 3.0. However, something that I think we fail to see or that is not talked about as often is how smart contracts are useful not just in Web 3.0, but also in revolutionizing traditional models and traditional um, businesses. For example, Contour, Marco Polo and others have developed 
electronic bills of lading, which are blockchain-based smart contracts that have revolutionized the shipping sector by reducing the entire execution of letters of credit process to 24 hours, down from the usual 5 to 10 days via the traditional paper-based process. And what I hope to see in future is how these smart contracts can be transposed to other sectors such as construction or insurance um, and how their use would really have um, knock-on effects in transforming these industries such as the financial sector as well as some of these smart contracts could perhaps also be the basis for, for granting of uh, credit of credit facilities as well. So yeah, I really I would really be excited to see how smart contracts might change the world in the future. The world is your oyster, as they say. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you. That was Jennifer Lim, co-founder and editor of Law Tech Asia. And earlier you heard from Lavina Ramkisun, co-founder and vice chair of the FinTech Association of South Africa. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe or follow Beyond the Capital on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hilary Smith-Allen. Thanks for listening.